0: Please note that Matan's crowdfunding campaign began on May 25th and will be continuing throughout this week. Uh, we'd really appreciate any support that you can show for MATAN and all of its Bait Me Drash programs. Uh, check out our website for the ability to donate and support MATAN to continue in all these wonderful endeavors. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Podcast. Today's episode is dedicated in memory of Mindel Reisel Batzivia, Myrna Sternberg, who passed away right before we recorded this episode. Myrna had a deep love for Torah learning, and we will deeply miss her. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. And this week I'm thrilled to begin the fourth book of the Torah, the book of Bamidbar. Prashad Bamidbar opens with the book's first national census, the organization of the Israelite encampment, details the dedication of the Levites as unique servants of the tabernacle and its vessels, and details the tasks assigned to each Levitic family. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rashad Beit Nidrash of Matan and its academic director, Dr. Yael Ziegler. Yael is also a senior lecturer at Charzagh College and a returning podcast guest. Yeah, Elle, it's great to have you here today.
1: Thank you. Thank you, I thought It's great to be back. And uh, I'll just say that I'm particularly uh, deeply saddened, but also um, honored to be able to dedicate this class in memory of Myrna. And uh, we will miss her a tremendous amount. She had a real presence in the classroom. So we're thinking about her this morning.
0: Yeah, Elle, so let's go deep into the Parsha. Where where are we beginning today?
1: So I guess one of the things that I immediately think about when I think about Parshat Be'midbar is that it doesn't have a lot of narrative and it's you know it seems to be one of the drier parshiot in the Torah and I think you know sometimes when we look at some of these parshiot we're we immediately search for the narrative element in it because that's the part that is more you know intriguing it's more exciting it seems to have more depth. Um, one of the things that I like to talk about, though, is how to make some of these parshiot that seems to consist of lists or, you know, certain organizational principles, how to make them meaningful. Yeah. I think that many of us had the experience growing up that when we would approach these shiri, most well, certainly in the younger grades, when we would uh, come to these parshiot or to these uh, chapters, You know, the teacher might say a few words about it and then (laughs) skip, right? (laughs) You know, skip to the more interesting parts. Uh, one of the things that I was very gratified to encounter, uh, when I arrived at Herzog College was, and not as a student, but really as a teacher, was to watch my colleagues address these partiote um, and, and try to make sense of them. Um, so, you know, maybe I'll just mention an example not from Parshat Bimidbar, and then we'll dive into our Parshat. Um, and, you know, cause I, I think it's a really good example, which is, you know, the beginning of Bereishit, when we have all those genealogies, the Toledot, right? Both in Perak Hay and in Perak Yud. Um, you know, chapter five, chapter 10, we have these, these lists of genealogies, and, you know, you get to them and you say, Okay, but you know, we don't really have to learn them, we just have to know that they're there, right? And you know, maybe you, you want to read through it kind of rapidly just to get give a sense of, you know, what the what the names are, but they seem to be rather repetitive and you know, and consist of material that doesn't it seem to have so much depth. Um and you know, what one of the things that that um that that I began to see while encountering some of my colleagues at um at Herzog is that you don't skip Prakim. Um and you know there's this um idea in the genealogy in Hay, which is not it's not it's not some kind of new idea right you know Rashar Hirsch talks about it and Rav David v. Hoffman talks about it and that is that when you look at the genealogy in Hay, it actually mirrors the stories in Dalid. and you immediately pay attention to it when you note that the same uh, kind of ending of Dalid, which tells us the genealogy of Cain but it tells it in story form reappears in this kind of dry genealogy in Perik Hay. so that you know in in uh, both genealogies we have someone in hanokh and in one genealogy we have irad and the other we have yarad in one genealogy we have mechuyael and in the other we have mehalalel both genealogies have alemech right you know so we have this kind of paralleling of the two genealogies going on which again you know we're not talking about bereshit, parakhay right now but if uh you know that becomes kind of a clue to understanding how to regard our genealogy as part of a deeper story so that we have the genealogy of Cain, which leads us to a world of technology and city building and power and, you know, kind of a dangerous story, but one that bears a lot of fruits. And then we have this kind of Uh, almost dry genealogy in Parakeh, which leads us to Noach, which leads us to an Ishtamim. It's the genealogy not of Cain, but the genealogy of Shait. And so the mirroring of these genealogies creates these two kind of alternative uh, lifestyles.
0: In the academic world as well, you have, and some of it is due to people who have also walked through the walls of Herzog, and some of them are not, but you also have more literary study of those lists. Um, whether, in that case, you know I, I also Kasuto, who you know I love, but he also has he's written very long time ago very things that echo what you said right now about Dalit and mm-hmm. Pararica for Breshiet. um but you have more literary attention that's being paid to these lists. why are they why are they incorporated, where they're incorporated? Why do they begin or end the way that they do? I mean, it's very obvious that there are choices that are made into how these lists are created because there are so many facts at at the hands of. Of of those who are putting them together, and and there are choices that are made about what makes it and what doesn't, and those choices are often where we find the most meaning in in these lists that are I agree with you very far from being from being dry, and they contain a tremendous amount of message, ideas, and ideology in, incorporated in them.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think two things. First of all, I think that the midrash was often uh, arriving at. Similar kinds of conclusions that we might arrive at today, but the Midrash doesn't necessarily uh, show us the whole process. In other words, you know, the Midrash is kind of going to jump ahead and say, look at what the line of Kyan produces. As opposed to what the line of shape produces. But they're not necessarily gonna, you know, hold your hand and take you through the process as, uh, you know, as, as many scholars will do today. But the other point that I wanted to say in response to your point is, is that I think that Rashar Hirsch and, and Rav Davidsvi Hoffman, um, you know, are responding to academia. There's what academia often did with this kind of mirroring, uh, you know, so, you know, Perak Dalid, we have the line of Kayin, and it seems to be kind of mirrored or maybe even repeated in Perak Hay. And so, you know, in academic circles, that was kind of chalked up to two different versions of the same story found in two different documents. And Rashar Hirsch and Radatz Hoffman, who were very disturbed by this kind of um i would say almost facile um attempt to reconcile this repeating element they had to look at this and try to discover meaning in it so that some of these new approaches are actually in response to academic uh, tanakh study Anyway, let's turn our attention maybe to uh, Sefer Bar and see if we can come up with some deeper understanding of some of the technicalities that appear in this parsha. Great. I'll start by saying that um, you know, in our first parak, we have the census, and you know, there's been a lot of work done with the numbers and uh, and the counting. And I'm going to, for the moment, uh, you know, kind of skip over that and and look in Parak Bet, which is the organization of the Machane, right? Uh, the organization of the Machaneh into the four different digalim, right? The four different groups. And again, you know, it seems very technical who goes with who, where they are, what, you know, what, what, what's in the middle. Um, and, and this is the way they camp. It's possibly also the way that they travel, although about that there seems to be some machloket, and probably the simple meaning is that they travel in a line, but they do not necessarily in a box in the way that they yeah. camped. Rashi brings both possibilities, um, but they do certainly travel with their group, with their subgroup. And what's interesting about this is that once you begin to pay attention to the subgroups and their positioning around the Mishkan, things begin to emerge, which are interesting, right? In other words, ideas begin to emerge, meaning begins to emerge. So the first thing you note is that on all four sides of the Mishkan, there are three tribes, but that each of these four groups has a leader, right? I don't know, maybe that's not the first thing you know. The first thing you know is that Shevet Levi doesn't camp with them, right? Because they camp in some kind of internal um, uh, uh, structure. Maybe we won't talk about that right now. Um, but, you know, the fact that we have four leaders, that itself is interesting. It's, again, you know, I would think, well, how many leaders does Ami El need?
0: A leading tribe.
1: Right, one. Right, one leader. <laughs> four leaders seems to be, I don't know, mu'ad puranu. Like it seems to be a recipe for, uh, you know, all sorts of struggles, contention. I mean, but again, even going back to the stories of B'nai Akov, Rachel, Leah, Yosef, Yehuda, Reuven, we already sense that there are different leaders going on in the family. And it doesn't really surprise us that those same leadership figures reemerge in this in this tribal context, right? In their tribal configurations. So we have four leaders. We have Yehuda on the eastern side of, of the encampment. We have Ephraim, meaning the, the leader son of Yosef on the western side. We have Dan, who is, uh, actually does not seem to have any leadership role in Sefer Bresheet. So he's our most surprising figure. He's on the northern end and he is the Oldest son of Bilha, so he kind of becomes the leader of the maidservants of the children of the maidservants, and then in the south we have Reuven, who certainly is looking for some kind of leadership role, and he is of course the Behor, he's the real oldest son
0: of Yaakov. So we have these four leaders. I would also say that Dan he he comes up with the Mishkan, meaning he his first role, so to speak, is when he is part of the creative. The creative side of of the Mishkan, and he gets paired up there also with a representative from Yehuda. So there's where we have sort of like the first the first uh, element of Dan that becomes a leader. Uh, later we'll have more. We'll have other leaders who come from from Dan, like Shimshon. So yeah, he's unexpected here, but our first hint is already. In Shmo, where we hear about about Jebatan.
1: yeah, absolutely. The fact that he's chosen to partner with Yehuda in the laying the foundations and building the uh, the, the the Mishkan is very significant, definitely. Um, so, I, I guess the first conclusion that we could draw is it's okay to have more than one leader. That's an interesting conclusion. As a mother, I don't know if I would naturally, um, you know, I'd naturally conclude that I, I might say, no, one leader is enough. But that there might be a a need for different types of leaderships and maybe also different subgroups within any national context.
0: You know, I feel, though, that that is the response to Safer Break Sheet. Like you said before, that it's surprising because we see all the struggles between the siblings. But I feel like one of the takeaways from those struggles is that when we're always trying to figure out which one is going to be the leader, that is what creates all the tension. So instead of having one leader, we say, okay, well, we'll try out a different structure. Instead of taking 12 and finding one, we'll take 12 and we'll find four who can sort of be those more dominant tribes. So in that way, I feel like it's a healthy progression away from all the struggles that we see in Safer Sheets.
1: Yeah, I think it's a it's also a, um, a healthy balance between recognizing that there are always going to be subgroups. There are always going to be people who kind of cohere together because they have similar interests or they have similar backgrounds. They may have similar socioeconomic needs. Um, you know, and, and, and this we'll see also later on in their placement in the land of Israel. Um, and, and of course trying to maintain cohesion, right? So that's a balance between recognizing that there are subgroups and recognizing that there's a national goal. I mean, I would say that there's a similar kind of tension in universalism and nationalism. You know, we want to, um, have a certain kind of, group loyalty to our nation, but we also want to keep in mind, as the Torah does, that we all have universal goals, and there's something that pulls us together as humans. And that's why the Torah starts with the first 11 chapters. It doesn't start with Abraham. It starts with, let's talk about our shared goals as humans. Now let's talk about our goals as the children of Abraham. And even here, we create further subdivisions, which have dangers, but also recognize a real human need for creating smaller communities, you know, within a more, um, intimate and, and both need based, but also maybe even, you know, value based um substructure so that's that's the second point that i think is an immediate kind of conclusion i would say also where they're placed is interesting right where the east west axis seems to be the more significant axis uh and if we do imagine like in bimidbar parakid like it seems to indicate in bimidbar parakid that they're walking in a line and not in a square they're uh they're in a line they're in two groups Right? Because the Mishkan is in between. So the, the first group is led by Yehuda, mm-hmm. and it's Yehuda and Reuven together. That's the Beneleah. And the second group is Ephraim with the children of the maidservants with Dan, and Ephraim is leading that group. So we have these two kind of groups. One is the children of Leah, led by Yehuda, yeah. and the other is Yosef and the maidservants who were together in Bereshit Lamed Zion, right? Yeah.
0: The point being that this is utterly echoing what we already saw in Sefer Bereshit. We have also these two leading, two leading elements, which we've divided into four for the sake of sort of evening out all the kohot when we're actually in camp, but when we're walking in movement, we have, we're really flanked by Yehuda and Ephraim, who yeah. are Yehuda and Yosef, who are the the leading, the leading tribes to begin with.
1: Yeah. And mm-hmm. if you look at these groups, what you see is you see something interesting. What are the subgroups? So uh, on the eastern side, we have Yudah, who seems to be leading kind of the core group of B'nei Leah, of the children of Leah. The western side is certainly the children of Rachel. The northern side consists of the children of the maidservants. Mm-hmm. So what's the southern side?
0: So here I... Um, here we have Ru'uven, Shimon, yeah, so Shimon, and Gad. Yeah, we have Ru'uven, so and What is that? Because that's a mix yeah. of mothers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So here I kind of turn to, uh, yeah, you know, I don't even know who to give credit for this idea, but it's certainly some of my colleagues at Herzog College, like, you know, David Nativ. Um, he's the one I actually heard it from. I don't, I don't know who to give proper credit to, but he describes this group as, and this is a really interesting category as the group of people who were pushed aside mm-hmm. from their leadership position. Right. Reuven, who's the Bechor, does not get the Bechorah. The next one in line for the Bechorah does not, that's Shimaon, does not get the Bechorah. Levi gets religious leadership. He's the next in line. And then the fourth in line is the one who actually gets the real leadership, Yehuda, right? Who becomes, of course, the tribe of kingship, Lo Yasor Shevet me Yehuda, right? The staff should never, uh, depart from the tribe of Yehuda. And the third one with Ruvain and Shimon is God. And God is the, uh, right? We have two maidservants. We have Bilha and Zilpa. They each have a Bechor. Yeah. Bilha, her Bechor is Dan, and he gets the leadership over the maidservants. Zilpah's Bechor is God, and he gets Nothing. no leadership <laughs> position. And Nothing. so I think that this is wonderful. I think that the Torah is recognizing that there is a group here that needs kind of maybe special attention, its own kind of um, uh, leadership existence.
0: Well, they have a camaraderie surrounding what they didn't receive. So I'm sure that they created other identities that were more positive than that. But Absolutely. it's, their, it's their, joint, their joint destiny. Well, um, you know,
1: I think also when we turn this whole um, configuration into um, its mirror image in the land of Israel— we begin to see the real meaning here, and I'll just say something about the Beneh Hanidachim, this like group of, of the, re- the rejects, <laughs> rejected choro, which is a very difficult uh, category. But I think it becomes more, um, it becomes sharper and maybe more meaningful when we see what happens to them in the land of Israel. Which is, of course, that yeah. they,
0: they yeah. don't really have allotments in the exact way that the others do. That's right. Uh, Ruven, you know, for at least for a certain portion of history also is not fully in the in the Jordan, in the land of Israel that we call it today. Shimon eventually gets engulfed in Yehuda's territory and God's territory. Is also on the other side of the Jordan. Also on the other side. You know, it's, look. Menashe gets to play on both sides, but that's always true. Meaning Menashe, who here is with Ephraim, we also have only the half of Menashe went to the other side. So there's always a portion of Menashe that stays with the general, with the broader group. So it's interesting that he's also not put with them here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say, I would say what happens in the land of Israel, first of all, Shimon. From the beginning doesn't get his own, um, yeah. uh, inheritance. He doesn't get a portion. And, and that seems to be because of the, uh.
0: Story with Pinchas.
1: Well, even before that, when, when Yaakov says to Shimon and Levi, I'll scatter them. You don't get your own portion because we're a little nervous of what happens when Shimon is a cohesive unit without kind of a buffer or someone there to, to ensure okay. that Shimon's
0: passions don't overtake him. Levi's get sublimated into not having a portion, but it's because they are now servants of the, of the, of the temple and therefore they don't need a portion in that kind of way. Whereas Shimon, it sort of manifests itself tragically in the fact that they really never get the portion at all.
1: Yeah. I would and even say that the part with Levi, I would say it a little bit more strongly. I would say Levi's passion is utilized for service of God in the story of the Agal and so we turn the scattering of the tribe from a curse into a, a blessing, blessing, right, so that Levi becomes the great teachers of Israel, and they, they're scattered all over the land in their 48 cities so that they can teach, so they can spread their great love. and God, I want to just point out that in midbar Paraklamid Bet, when Reuven and God uh, come to Moshe and they say to Moshe, you know, we want to stay on the side of the Jordan, we don't want to go into the land. And Moshe is absolutely outraged. There, so I think maybe the angriest I see Moshe. I mean, Moshe calls them Tarbut anashim chataim," which is really strong language—a culture of sinful men—and he accuses them of doing all sorts of, you know, uh, of, of 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 you know, this request is similar to all sorts of terrible, egregious sins that Am Yisrael did, Baal Peor, etc. So, you know, you wonder what is so upsetting to Moshe. So, I think the classic answer is. All Moshe wants to do is go into the land of Israel, and along comes Ruvain and God, come Ruven and God and say, oh no, 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 we don't want to go into the land of Israel, we're happy to stay here, there's really good, you know, grazing land for our, for our cattle. But I think it's more than that. I think that Moshe is sensitive to the possibility that Ruven and God are opting
0: out. Because They've always felt on the outside, anyways. Yeah. So why not just stay back and and be the masters of our own territory?
1: Yeah, which is why mm-hmm. the solution here, because of Moshe's sensitivity, is you can you can have this land, but first you have to show that you're in. That you're not, you're not taking the land like, I don't know, like Lot when he separated from Avram or like Asaph when he separated from Yaakov who go exactly to that area because of their cattle. Yeah. But they do it in order to say, we don't want to be part of the bracha. We don't want to be part of the blessing. So Reuven and God here, uh, possibly are saying, okay, we didn't get what we wanted. We are opting out of the bracha of Am El. And Moshe says, no, 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 you can have that area. Um, it's not, you know, it's, it, it wasn't the Lechatrila plan. You can have that area, but you have to show that you're in. And I'll say just one more thing, and then we'll, we'll go on. And that is that with, with Menashe, you mentioned correctly that Menashe is definitely an anomaly. First of all, he gets the biggest area, of uh, the biggest tribal portion. And he's placed on both sides of the Jordan. But he's not part of the original two that come to Moshe. No, he doesn't. He shows up very mysteriously later on. No, Moshe places him with them. At the end of 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 Lamed Bet, Moshe says, "Okay, Reuven and God, you can go, and and Menashe, you go with them." And
0: I think yeah. part of it he is wants the, he wants a bridge; he needs a bridge.
1: Absolutely, territorial needs, contiguity. Needs, but also think about no, who an Minashe emotional bridge. Is.
0: No, I mean, I'm saying he he also territorial, that's for sure, but he wants an emotional bridge. I Meaning, I want to take a child who you know, or a tribe who didn't feel pushed out in the way that they did, and even put them, though he was a Bahor. N- Right. He was the one who accepted. He was the yeah. one who accepted the being overlooked, right? That's the, one of the best tikkun of, in Sefer Bresheet is that scene there where we get back and we're all <laughs> very scared of what's about to happen, right. but then you have a child who doesn't seem to care.
1: It's a remarkable tikkun. Or yeah. or I don't know if he doesn't care, but he accepts it as yeah. this is the destiny It doesn't of... become
0: another familial drama. It, yeah. It becomes—it just is.
1: And so he's placed with the God, almost in this, you know, uh, Educational way, right? You stay with them and make sure that they retain their insider status and their desire to, you know, be part because you have that, you know, you have that ability. So there's a lot, you know, so you, you talk about the placement of people in, uh, of the tribes around the Mishkan. And, and then suddenly you see that it's actually mirrored in the land of Israel with, you know, deeper and deeper meaning that really gives us insight into, you know, what, what, what's going on.
0: This conversation is throwing me also to these questions about how people choose where to live today, which I think is also, there's so many questions that go into that. And when my husband and I were looking for a very, very long time trying to figure out where we would, what our next step would be after living in in a city. So there's a column in the paper that we receive which is every week they feature another family living somewhere in the land of Israel. And we were just just kind of like lost on this topic. And there was a long story that came after that. But we would note always how is it that they chose to go where they went. And a large percentage of those people chose to move where they had family members. That was a very clear overarching factor in this country. And I have a lot of reasons why I think that's the case. But We'll leave it at that for now. And then there would be all other. There would be personality. We wanted something totally different. We definitely didn't want to live somewhere that was anything like where we grew up. We wanted a place that resembled but wasn't physically close. There were all these different reasons why people ended up living where they did. Um, and so this, this sort of is throwing me back to that place of there's a tremendous amount of significance where people end up. You know, I could say for myself that where I am right now and where I'm looking at at this moment out from my window as we record. Is that this is a place in the country that I fell in love with when I was 18 years old. And I traveled to many other places and and even tried living in other places, but there was something about this spot that kept pulling that kept pulling me back, even when I didn't want to come back. And so it's sort of this interplay of the psychological drama, you know, or the familial uh the familial dynamics and and how people end up living where they live. And I think that what you're pointing out about the tribes of Israel is that. There's there's a familial drama that goes that's sitting behind the geographical reality that we read about.
1: Listeners are wondering where you live.
0: (laughs) I think they know. (laughs) I live in Gush but I I, I feel like I've said that before. Okay, but there was a, anyways. Yeah, Um,
1: but I will. You know, look. In terms of their placement in the land of Israel, God places them as opposed to well, maybe God places us also. But but there is an element of choice, like we just said, with regard to Reuven and God, and you know. Uh, God, the tribe. No? Yes, I understand. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but, you know, I mean, there is there does certainly seem to be some correlation between where they are and what their destiny is and, you know, what their role is. What is the meaning of where they were placed? You know, so I, I'll say a couple interesting things. First of all, Binyamin becomes the area of the Mishkan, right? So he kind of if you look at the configuration around the Mishkan, um, uh, the Mishkan is a, is an object, right? But in the land of Israel, the Mishkan morphs into the Mikadash. And we have, uh, you know, wherever the Mishkan goes, it wanders around in the tribe of Binyamin. One, one question is with regard to Shiloh, but there's an opinion that, uh, that, that Shiloh is also, like, you know, on the tip of Binyamin. That's Gemara and Svachim. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the fact that Binyamin becomes the Mishkan is itself an interesting point. Why does he merit the Mishkan? But the more interesting point in, in, in my opinion is that if you look at the tribe of Binyamin and where he's placed in the land of Israel, he is surrounded by four tribes on his south, Yehuda, on his north, Ephraim, on his west or on the western side, Dan, and on the eastern side, Ruvain And it's the four leaders. Mm-hmm. Right now, in the land of Israel, the north-south axis replaces the east-west axis because there is no real east-west axis in the land of Israel. It's just too narrow. So the primary uh, directions in the land of Israel are north and south. And so Yehudah... And Ephraim are on the north south axis. So it kind of shifts, you know, yeah. rotate, uh, rotate picture right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Rotate>. Exactly. <laughs> but, but what I think is remarkable about this point is that even though largely in the land of Israel, the different subgroups remain together contiguous to some degree with certain very notable exceptions, the four leaders are all placed in the center with equal access to the mishkan mm. with equal access to the mikdash and that is a very i don't know democratic statement right it was even though we have these different subgroups and you know it seems that the um the the certainly you know some of the subgroups seem perhaps less um uh, significant in terms of their leadership role than others in the end all four subgroups have a representative at the center which I think is a remarkably, you know, um, kind of advanced um,
0: uh, idea. Right. So again, we have this idea where the, these leading tribes are, are somewhat central. I mean, they could have, someone could have been put in a large allotment up north, right, or a large allotment, well, not so much down south, because the southern was a very limited area also in the time of Tanakh. Um, but, but that they all have this equal, this equal access. It does place Benjamin a little bit above them. Also, I thought that the Midash straddled. A little bit. No, mm-hmm. it doesn't. No, the
1: Mikdash. Doesn't is doesn't in Binyamin. Bin but you're shalai and you're you're right because it's it's uh, the the uh, the border goes right between the house of the Melech and the house and the Mikdash, right. yeah. which are adjacent to each other. They're attached but to the each Yamin. other. The Mikdash
0: itself is in Binyamin.
1: Yeah, it's in Binyamin, mm-hmm. because Ben Ktefah Shachin, that's right. part of the um, part of the bracha brachat the Yamin, is that God dwells um you know uh kolayom uh, ben God dwells within the area of Binyamin. and there's a lot of midrashic uh, um, discussion as to
0: why Benjamin um, merits this. If I could just say, from a yeah. familial point, that Binyamin is the youngest. Okay, and there's something about being the youngest that. There's something about them that could be a little bit favored, but they don't – I'm going in a different direction than what you thought. But there's something that could be a little bit favored, but there isn't that same – first of all, there's no jealousy surrounding him to begin with, meaning in all of the the hoopla of Sefer sheet, he doesn't garner that negative energy. That actually, the energy is positive trying to protect him in order to protect Yaakov. Um, but I would say even from a familial psychological perspective, it's often the older children statistically that have a lot of that um, – a lot of that. Yeah, the difficulty, the struggle to the the each angst. other. The Exactly, because they're carrying over their parents' angst. There are all, all different reasons for why. But but the youngest child, there's something a little bit more neutral about them. I know it's very hard to say. I'm sure many people who are youngest children listening will say, I'm nothing neutral about my family position. But there's something, certainly biblically, about being, a mean, that is more neutral than others. And it's interesting to think about how that carries over also in the familial general psychological perspective. Yeah, Um I know, at least in our little family, that the youngest gets just eaten up by everybody. But, you know, I'm sure different families are different things.
1: Yeah. Look, I would say you covered some of the ground that the Midrash offers. The Midrash offers a range of reasons, one of which is, in fact, that Binyamin, because he's the youngest, he's the one who cared for his father at his old age. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of which is because Binyamin was born in the land of Israel, which seems more... Technical, but maybe not more metaphysical. Let's say, um, but the, the the most important point, that, I mean, which is what the one that you made, which I think is the most important point. I mean, the Midrash doesn't necessarily give different gradations to its reasons, but that is that um, Binyamin mm-hmm. actually is neutral. Binyamin never takes part in the sale of Yosef. Mm-hmm. Now, again, there's a technical reason for that; he was probably something like six years old at the time. Yeah. But the fact that he wasn't part of it. Means, and I think the word that you used is the correct word with regard to Binyamin, and that is neutral. Binyamin, whether he's most loved or certainly they're trying to protect him, but, you know, I don't know if he's most loved, but certainly he is the most neutral figure of the, the brothers. And that, I think, really comes to, to the fore, um, in that, um, he never speaks. There's an interesting thing about Binyamin, the stone in the Choshen that is uh, applied to him, that that has his name on it, is a stone called the Yoshefeh. And the Midrash says, Yeshpe the mm-hmm. Binyamin. Because you might think that he doesn't have a mouth because he doesn't speak. But you should understand, I think what the Midrash is saying to us is, you should understand that Binyamin doesn't speak not because he doesn't have words, but because he chooses not to speak. Because what would have happened if Binyamin had spoken during the story of and safe. He would have taken sides and, and. He would have had to choose right. between his full brother and the one who has basically protected him and raised him. And by choosing not to speak, he becomes the emblem of neutrality. And that's the mikdash, mm-hmm. right? The mikdash is in Binyamin because it's the place that all of Israel come to meet. And so they meet on neutral ground. And the Mikdash in this way, I think, really becomes a place of unity. And Binyamin is the the bearer of unity, unity of the brothers in Bereshit. And, of course, that's not true everywhere in Tanakh. Binyamin very much disappoints us in the story of Pilagesh Begiva. So, you know, we have to be aware that not all the tribes live up to um what, you know, what their role is, what their destiny is. You know, there's really a lot to say about the way that the tribes and their configuration around the Mishkan and also in the land. What it says about about them and their role, and and what what we can learn from them. But you know, I think we've gotten a little bit, some tidbits, some 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 food for thought, and um, it's been great talking to you about this, Yosefa.
0: Always. Thanks for being here, yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.